John is reflecting back as our presbyteros on all of his experience as a Christian and as a Christian leader in the faith, and he says, one thing stands out as the most joyful experience of all as a Christian. Once I became a Christian, nothing else was like this. And that spiritual parenthood. That's what he's talking about here. Nothing pleases me more than to hear that my own children are walking in the truth. Gaius was Tarmatekna, his own child. My own children. Somebody that he had led to faith in Jesus Christ. That was a common kind of way of talking about your converts, a loving way, that you had sort of fathered them in the faith. Of course, regeneration and real fatherhood is from God. But in a sense, you were their spiritual father and that you were the one who brought them to birth by presenting the gospel to them. And Paul uses that same expression in, in another little letter to Philemon when he speaks about Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bond. While he was in prison in Rome, and Nesbitt somehow or other got in touch with Paul, or Paul heard about him and got somebody to go get him, and, and Paul talked to him about the Lord, and this runaway slave came to know Christ and became a great help to Paul in his ministry there. And Paul says, I begot him in my bond. Now, well, Paul knew and John knew, and we all know that, that it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates people and gives them the new birth, but in a, in a secondary sense. The person who leads another to faith in Christ is his spiritual father. We all talk that way anyway. We understand what we mean, and the New Testament understands what it means. And John here is saying, Gaius, you're one of my, my children in the faith. I led you to Christ. And the greatest experience I ever had is to see that somebody I've led to faith in Christ is walking in the truth. Think about that little child of yours. You remember? How when that little wrinkly red thing with those little tiny fingernails, toenails, came into the home and he lay there, or she lay there on that crib and you just couldn't get enough of it, stood around and just marveled and looked at that child and eventually you went like this and the eyes went, he said, look, he's following my fingers. Could be a genius. Could be a genius. And then you look for that next day when he could turn over and use it. Mommy, mommy, come in here, look, he's turning over. And over he goes. The first thing you know, he's crawling over the side of the crib and coming down on his head. <laughs> Fortunately, those heads are not so hard yet and they give at that stage. And then there's the day when walking around, holding on the table, you know, barely make it walking around the table, and mommy goes like this, and he strikes out and tumbles over into her arm, and he's walking. All those stages of growth, all those wonderful moments, all those great experiences. Finally, one day, mommy stands at the door with tears streaming down her eyes. Off he goes out the gate to kindergarten. 
Well, you know, all those experiences along the way. Sure, there are hard times, but you tend to forget those and remember the good things and all the wonderful things that happened. All those joys of seeing a child grow and be able to walk, be able to do things on his own or on her own, growing, learning, standing on his or her own two feet, making decisions and going on. John says that's great, but there's an experience even greater. That is to lead somebody to faith in Christ and be the father of that person in the faith. And to see that person grow spiritually strong and able to walk in the truth. Like that little baby walks and hears walking in the truth. And John says, out with the missionaries for me, these brothers, verse 3. Back they came and they testified about your truth, your truth, the truth of his life. You see... They didn't know what truth Gaius had in his head because they couldn't examine what was in his head. But they saw his truth as he lived it, as he manifested it, as they experienced that truth in action in terms of love shown toward them by Gaius. And so they came and testified that he was walking in the truth. That is, his life exhibited that he knew and was dedicated to doing God's truth. Nothing pleases me more than to hear that my own children are doing it, that they are walking in the truth. Now, uh, <clears throat> counseling exhibits some of that joy. You won't always get a chance in counseling to deal with people only whom you have led to faith in Christ. But you will have the opportunity of being the one who can see some of these people begin to walk in the truth. You can kind of be their adopted parent in the faith. And how wonderful that experience is, even at that level. As minimal as it may be by comparison to seeing somebody grow from his first knowledge of Christ to becoming a strong Christian who's leading others to faith in Christ and walking for him. Just to get in on some little chunk of that, as a person comes to your church, you may not have led to Christ, but he's a Christian and he has a problem and you were able to help him because he was stumbling and falling and he was on flat on his face half the time and you had the joy of lifting him up and getting him out of the mess and getting him walking in the truth. There's a joy there. And you know there are a lot of sour Christians who don't have much happiness in life. A lot of frustrated Christians who are all in groans. You know, one of the reasons why is because they don't have any spiritual children and they don't work with spiritual children to help those who are having trouble to walk. They once got involved in real help in Christian counseling, the joy of this would reach down to their hearts. I can remember many an hour, many a day rather, in which I spent 10, 11, sometimes 12 hours counseling or training or a combination of both. And I can remember because it was so complex to try to cancel them all out, going to counseling with fever, hoping I wouldn't communicate it to all the counselees so that they would have to cancel out. But going with a real fever and feeling awful, wondering how I could drag myself out to counseling. And I get started with a day full of eight or ten cases. And I get going, and by the third case, the fever was gone. I was beginning to feel great. And when I was through that night, I came home dead tired but happy. There's just something plain old therapeutic, physically, in helping other people, the joy of it. Now, 
You have a great privilege. Oh, how it breaks my heart to hear Christian people say, but can I use some Freud? Can I use some Rogers? Can I use some Ellis and Adler and Maslow and all these guys, Skinner and so on? It just breaks my heart because what they're doing to themselves, let alone what they're doing to the people, is so awful. If you live with Freud all day long, you're going to become like him. He turned out to be an addict. Cocaine addict. If you get to start living with all these guys all day long in your counseling, you're going to become like them. Just the very risk that it holds for the counselor. Forget the counselee for a moment. The very risk that it holds for the counselor is so great because all day long, day after day, week after week, he's becoming caught up in and a part of this thinking of whoever it is that he's adopted. And he will become like it. You talk to a Rogerian counselor who's been at it for 10 years, and you can't get a straight statement out of him on anything. <laughs> He'll ask you what the weather's like, and he says, Aha, you're interested in the weather. <laughs> he personally is affected by it. You can't have this stuff in your head and in your practice and what you're telling the people day in and day out, unless you're a total shyster, it's all on the outside. You can't work with that day after day and really believe in it and work with it without it having something to do with you. Thank God we're using the Bible. What a privilege you have. What a joy you have to work with people on the level of God's Word. Forget the people for a moment. Think of yourself. To stay with God's Word. To talk God's Word. Think God's Word. Help people with God's Word. Think through the light in the light of God's Word, what their problems are, what the solutions to them are, and how you implement God's Word and be at that day in and day out, week in and week out, year after year, God's Word getting into your life. Because that's what you're dealing in, the Word of the living God and the power of the Spirit working through it. My friends, you have a great privilege to be working in the Word, a privilege that all these other people don't know anything about. No wonder John, John said, No greater joy ever came to me in my whole Christian experience of 60 or 70 years as I look back as the Paul Buterach than to see somebody I led to faith in Christ as we work with him over the years growing so he's walking strongly and sturdily in the faith. The joy of all that milieu of Christian faith the new you being love in truth. Well, I think we'll quit. I'm at a breaking point, and so are you. For those of you who came in late, we've already prayed if you think we haven't. So you just better pray on your own and pray that you'll be on time next time while you're praying. All right, come now to verses 5 to 7, and we get into the heart of this letter. Remember something about the background that I gave you so far, but there's more background now. This is not only a conflict situation in which the initial stages of resolving that conflict have failed, the initial counseling efforts have not succeeded, and therefore further efforts must be made. 
This is not only a crisis situation into which uh, certain kinds of uh, immediate responses must be intruded in order to help those who are involved in the crisis, but this is a very specific crisis having to do with hospitality of traveling missionaries in a local church somewhere uh, to which those missionaries were traveling. Let's read, I'll read and you read along quietly, those verses. Dear friends, you are faithful when you do anything for the brothers, especially for strangers who have testified about your love before the church. You will do well to send them forward on their trip in a manner that is worthy of God because they went out on behalf of the name, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to take up the support of such men so that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, in these verses, we get something of the background of the problem, the specific background of the specific problem, though we don't have the problem yet before us. John now is commenting on what occasioned the problem. John had sent out traveling missionaries, itinerant preachers. And these preachers of the gospel were returning and speaking about Gaius and the way in which he was walking in the truth. We saw that in verse 3 yesterday. And John comments favorably on that in verse 4. But now he says, Gaius, I really am deeply appreciative of the way in which you took those missionaries into your home. He says, you are faithful when you do anything for these brothers, especially some who were strangers to you that you didn't know before, but you were willing to have them in your home and, and to uh, treat them in a hospitable fashion. And they've come back, verse 6, and they've testified about your love before the church. Now, he says, all that I've heard just makes me delighted. And now he goes on to talk about the future, even as he's been talking about the past. And he says, you will do well to continue this practice and indeed to send them forward on their trip in a manner that is worthy of God. Keep it up and be sure that you do it in this way. Now, that word to send forward on a journey or a trip, it's a technical phrase used in the New Testament that meant to pay all the expenses necessary both to take care of the person while he was with you, food, clothing, shelter, whatever he needed, and then to give him everything essential to get him on to the next place where the next Christian lives who would take up that person on his trip when he arrived. So you'd provide him with food, maybe transportation, you'd provide him with money, or whatever was necessary to get him from your house to the next person's house. That's what that word had involved in it. used elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Now, hospitality, including all these elements, was a big thing in the early church. You read about it in Romans 12, 13. I'll just give you a list of verses so you can check them out on your own later. You read about it in 1 Timothy 3, 2. You read about it in Titus 1, 8. You read about it in Hebrews 13, 2. You read about it in 1 Peter 4, 9. And you read about it in the book of 2 John, where a second entire book 
deals with the subject of hospitality just as this one does. Hospitality was a very important and critical matter in the early church. I'm not going to say anything at this point because there isn't time about how we have lost that emphasis in our church and how with it we have lost so many other things that came with it and that are a part of it. And I'm not going to exhort people to do something about it because we could spend another hour or two talking about the ins and outs of hospitality in our situation. But let's just stay with this passage and this problem and this background to understand what was going on in this case. Here, not only is Gaius commended for doing what he did, but he is encouraged to go on doing what he did. And this pertains very directly to the problem we'll see in a few moments. Now, it's interesting the way in verse 5 he has to assure him, Gaius, you, you, you're doing a faithful thing. You're doing the right thing. This is something that's growing out of your faith and a, your genuine faith and, and the expression of your faith in this way is, isn't wrong, Gaius. It's right. You might think that a bit peculiar that John should have to reassure Gaius about this, but not in the light of the problem that we'll see when we get on because there were people, at least one person, who was strongly saying, you should not do this, Gaius. And so there might have been some confusion in Gaius's mind about whether he had done the right thing or not. Indeed, Gaius had been thrown out of the church for doing this. And uh, since he had been tossed out of the church and was sitting on the curbstone scratching his head, wondering why he got thrown out of the church when he thought he did the right thing, there was good reason for John to reassure him, you see in this verse, that this is a faithful act. This is a good act. And not only is it good, you're to continue doing it in spite of what has been told to you or done to you. And these brothers who have come back and testified of Gaius' love before the church testified that Gaius had been very zealous and very good in demonstrating that love toward them. Now, he says, you will do well to send them forward on their trip in a manner that is worthy of God. In other words, the way in which missionaries ought to be treated is better than if they were royalty itself. We talk about a royal welcome, rolling out the red carpet or something of that sort. A missionary, a preacher of the word to whom we render hospitality, ought to be treated even more sumptuously than royalty. That isn't an attitude that we have toward missionaries today. The attitude we have in the church toward missionaries today so often, not everybody, but so often, is something like this. Well, I guess he couldn't make it at home, so he went on the mission field. They wouldn't know anything about his dad preaching because uh, obviously anybody can have problems with a foreign language. A lot of people think that way about a missionary. So when they do things for missionaries, they dig down into their old worn-out clothes and shoes, and they get their old beat-up, broken-handled pots and pans, and they send these to the missionary. They treat him in a manner worthy of you fill in the blank, but it's certainly not of God. And I even talked to one missionary one time who said he was sent some used 
tea bag. Oh, literally. That's what he told me. I have no reason to doubt him. Worn out carpet. Stuff you wouldn't put in your own house that you're glad to get rid of. Good enough for the missionary. That kind of an attitude. Missionary needs a typewriter. Well, so do I need one. I'll get a new one and send him my beat up one. Not, I'll keep my beat up one and send him a new one. In other words, this says, you better be careful how you treat a man representing God. He's not just any old Christian. He's a man who stands in the authority and place of responsibility of honor. You know, it talks about honoring elders in Thessalonians for their work, for the work that they do. Holding them in respect and high regard, it says, for the work that they do. Because that work brings a great responsibility to them. You see, when you exercise the responsibility of speaking and teaching and acting in God's name officially, you're going to have a severer judgment upon you, James says. Now, a lot of people want to teach in the church. They evidently were in James' time, too. Everybody seems today wants to be a teacher. Everybody's getting up and starting a course or having some kind of a program or starting some kind of thing. But, you know, awful lot of half-cocked teaching isn't very honoring to God. A lot of experience and all that sort of thing rather than biblical exposition. A lot of reading the Bible through my experience rather than reading my experience through the Bible, which is a great problem of our day. James says, don't many of you be teachers, for you shall receive stricter judgment. The man of God officially appointed to teach the word of God and to minister in his name and counsel and function in his name officially under the authority of Jesus Christ stands in a place of severer judgment than the average layperson. And we must never forget that. Well, because of that, God says, honor those people who are willing to assume that kind of responsibility and burden. And here he says about these itinerant missionaries to Gaius, he says, send them forward in a manner that is worthy of God. You were entertaining, not angels unawares, but if you were entertaining Jesus Christ in your home, God manifests in the flesh, how would you entertain him? Is what John asks you to consider. And if you were sending him on and giving him provisions on to the next place where he would be entertained, how would you provide for his needs between your house and the next? You should treat him in a manner that you would treat Jesus Christ, is what he says. That's what you should do. That's powerful writing in a manner that is worthy of God. None of these worn-out rugs to missionaries. Let's forget that kind of nonsense. Missionary has a need on the field, and you're able to meet that need. You meet it not just with the cheapest, most beat-up kind of thing you can find, but you get the thing that's going to serve him best. The man assumes the obligation of severe judgment, and he should be honored as he fulfills it faithfully. All right, so he says, now, you've done this. Continue to do it. And I want you to keep remembering that he not only commends, as we go forward, he commends Gaius in what he did, but he also says, keep it up, and here's how to do it. That's going to figure important in an important way in what we say in a few moments. Now he goes on to say, you have to support these people. 
because they went out on behalf of the name. Interesting way that he speaks of Jesus Christ, the name. Uh, the name of Christ, of course, Christos means the anointed one, the one of God, the one from God who had God's special anointing upon him to do the work that the Messiah came to do, or the anointed one came to do. And Jesus, the other name that he bears, is uh, means the Savior, God saves, uh, speaking of the work that he came to perform. Those names may be incorporated in this, but probably it's that name that Paul talks about in Ephesians, uh, in Philippians 2, which is above all other names that we're speaking about here, that name that was given to Jesus when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father, the name Lord, which was given to him, as Paul says, at that time, a name above all other names. So he's saying, they went out on behalf of the Lord, the Lord of the universe. That's whose representatives they are. And they should be treated in a manner worthy of the one whom they represent, you see. Now, because they went out in his name, it says they took nothing from the pagans or the Gentiles. There was a policy in those days of itinerant Stoic teachers to really gouge their students, get as much out of them as they possibly could. And other people who traveled about did much the same thing. I noticed an interesting uh, comment on this point in Cleon Rogers' uh, uh, Linguistic Key to the Greek New Testament. He quotes, uh, or he says this, that these missionaries were supported by fellow Christians stands in marked contrast both to the wandering philosophers of the day, that was the Stoics particularly, and as well as the beggar priest of the Syrian goddess who went out on behalf of the goddess and returned triumphantly boasting that, quote, each journey brought in 70 bags. So you can see what kind of thing was going on in the culture. And because that sort of thing was happening, there was always a bad name attached to that. Just as today, people so often say, ah, the church is always out after money. Always after money. And, you know, sometimes the accusation falls, very honestly, at the foot of the church or various people in it. But no such taint should be given to the name. These missionaries refused to take anything of the people to whom they were preaching the gospel for the sake of the name, lest anybody get the idea that Christ was out to get something from others. They had something to give, not something to get. And they wanted people to know that this message was free and that it was proclaimed freely and you couldn't buy salvation and Christ was not out to capture their purse. Capture their purse, but he wanted the whole man. So what they were interested in doing is doing nothing that in any way would bring shame upon the name of Christ. So they took nothing from the pagans to whom they preached the gospel. So he says in verse 8, we, the church, Christians, believers, we therefore... Since they refused to do this, and rightly so, ought to take up the support of such men so that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, there's an interesting play on the Greek words at this point. You see, it says, they took nothing, we therefore ought to take up such men. I've tried to 
bring out that play by translating it in two English words that are similar one to another. Lombonitus and Hupo Lomboni. You can see Lombonitus Lomboni. The basic root word is the same, and he's playing on that word and saying, because they took nothing, we must take them up, or we must support them. We must stand behind these men. In other words, the work of the gospel ought always to be financed by the giving of Christian people. The preaching of the gospel should never be financed by the people to whom the gospel is preached. And this principle is very important. When somebody stands at the airport jingling a little can with a sign on his on his shirt and uh, with a collar turned around the other way or something like that to let you know he's religious, uh, well, that guy is, is really doing harm in the name of Jesus Christ. And we don't need to have strawberry festivals to support the work of Christ. And uh, we don't need to have all kinds of auctions and junk sales and that kind of stuff. Christian believers have more than enough money to support the work of the Lord. Why, if we just had people who were dedicated, and that meant their money as well as their time and energy and everything else was dedicated, we'd have so much money that people really gave what they have who are in the Church of Christ today that we have problems deciding what to do with it. And that's the way it ought to be. There's no problem with money in the church of Jesus Christ. There's more than enough money out there. And if it wasn't out there, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He could take a few of them, barbecue them, and you know, sell them on his own. But the point of it is this, that they refused. So the believers had to take them up. They had to support them. That was the need. That was the desperate situation of these missionaries. That if nobody supported them, if Christians wouldn't take them in, if there was no hospitality going on in the community, and Christians said, no, oh, not me, and others said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do it, or somebody else said, no, for some reason, these guys were high and dry and left cold. They went hungry. They didn't have any place to stay. They didn't have any money to get on the next place. If they would normally take a boat, they'd probably have to hoof it the long way. And this was hindering the work of Christ when such things happen. That's why hospitality was so important and why it was in all these verses that I gave you earlier how this thing constantly came up in the New Testament. And even beyond the New Testament, if you look at the Didache, the so-called teaching of the Twelve Apostles, uh, that uh, very early document that uh, reflects a lot of what took place in the, immediately following the apostolic uh, period or even into it, there were regulations about what to do when missionaries came and how to treat them and how long they were to stay, whether they were true missionaries or not, and so on. Uh, and uh, an awful lot regulating this whole business of hospitality. And much of that became very legalistic. It wasn't the way the New Testament handled it. But you began to see how vital a matter it is from the fact that all these things had to be, had to be done to regulate it. So, Gaius took in these people helped them on to the next destination, and he's commended for it, and he's directed uh, and told how to do it in the future. And he is told, continue to do it. What he's virtually saying is, Gaius, you did the right thing, and you keep it up. Indeed, do it even better than you've done it in the past. Now, first, I want you to notice that there is a man here who's being counseled. And we're going to see why John is, is counseling Gaius around the edges of this other counseling problem that has so far failed. 
and has not succeeded. This counseling crisis, which to this point has, has been a, a fiasco in every way. But Gaius is being counseled around the edges too. He's of deep concern. He's the beloved friend, the convert of John. And he's been doing well. And John's very concerned, as you can see in verse 5, where he gives him this strong assurance he was doing the right thing. John is very concerned that what has happened in Gaius's church might in some way upset Gaius and turn his life in the wrong direction and maybe uh, stultify his growth. And so this strong word of assurance is given. There's a place for assurance and commendation in the way we deal with people who are in trouble. Now it has to be honest. John doesn't wire it on here. It's very true. He's telling you what he heard from the missionaries. They testified. I'm just simply telling you what I've heard, and it's all good. They say you're walking in the truth. They tell me how you received them, what you did for them. He's talking about factual data that everybody knew to be true. He's not larding something on uh, just in order to uh, make Gaius feel good. <laughs> but he's saying, I genuinely appreciate what you did for these brothers. They appreciated that they came back and told the whole church about it. And uh, I want you to know this was the right thing. It was a faithful thing you were doing. You keep it up. You do it even, even more intensively than you've ever done in the past. Now that kind of commendation is important in counseling to people who have doubts or questions as to whether they did the right thing and need help, need assurance. I don't know whether Gaius had any doubts or not, but I think he might have had some. After all, he'd been chucked out of his church for doing this as we're going to see. And if he's sitting there on the curbstone scratching his head and the word gets back to John and uh, John's told Gaius has some questions, you know, because here he did the right thing and he got uh, blasted for doing the right thing. Well, John is John's making it clear to him. He takes time in this short letter, in this one sheet of papyrus, he takes space. He's concerned to minister to this one man who is faithful because... He cared about him. Sometimes we forget to put the word of assurance, the word of commendation in there. It's got to be honest, legitimate, and it can't be used as a, a gimmick, a counseling device, or something of that sort. But where you see somebody needs that kind of encouragement, let's encourage. You know, I, I think here it's very spontaneous. I don't think uh, John is, is altogether calculating in what he's doing. There may have been a note of that. But it seems so spontaneous from the way he, the way he talks. Dear friend, it's, it's the worst between them and he, and he sees the need in Gaius's life for this and, and there's nothing he wants to do more than to reassure this man. And of course, that's how counseling really ought to be. It ought not to all be calculating. We've been taught so often and so much from people that here are the methods and here are the techniques and here is the way. But don't forget Paul's great words, that he rejoiced with those who rejoiced and he wept with those who wept. I'm even willing to cough with those who cough. Oh, it's perfectly fine. I'm not trying to embarrass you. In other words, what I'm saying is it was spontaneous on his part. It came because he cared. came because he really saw such needs and wanted to meet them and wanted to deal with people. 
you see? And, and everything we do should not just be calculated to produce some result. It ought to be an expression of what we really are and what we really think and what we really feel. And so there are times in the counseling session when you ought to say to somebody as you leap to your feet, Great! We finally made it! That's wonderful! And not because you're doing something out of technique, but because you really feel everything you said. You are excited after these long six weeks of dreary uh, effort and trying to make a breakthrough and nothing has happened and there have been setback after setback and finally the whole thing bursts out into the sunlight and you say, wonderful, at last, great. You shake his head and you say, oh, man, we're here at last, you know. That's no technique. If you do that as a technique, forget it. It's hollow, it's corny, it's crass, it won't work anyway. You'll know it's a technique. But if you're willing to let yourself go and be what you really are in that session and rejoice with those who rejoice because you have become so involved in their problem and you have walked through that difficulty and struggled with those problems and, and made that person's life almost your life as you're struggling there to help him solve those problems, then you should feel the way he feels when there's a breakthrough or when there's a tragedy on the other side or when something has been very wrong. It's not wrong to express your feelings and your views. You know, one of the real problems that people have in counseling, this gets off of our passage a bit, but I want to say it anyway. One of the real problems that people have is getting an honest reading from anybody. Most people either large you over, avoid the issue by just some quick little oblique comment in response to whatever you said, or in some other way do anything but tell you what they honestly think. It's hard to get an honest reading from somebody else. Now, because we need an honest reading in order to have an accurate self-image, as John said so well this morning. Because we need an honest reading from others, since our own reading of ourselves is so often so terribly biased, you, the counselor, ought to be the one, if there is nobody else, who will be as honest as you know how and really tell people. Not everybody. Some people, when you give it to them, would like to punch you in the nose. But most people are really glad for somebody to level at last and to get through all that outer crust that most people have and tell them what they really think about them. And after all, if he's come to you and asked you to tell him what you think about his life and he's explained your life, his life and his behavior to you, he's asking you to do just that. And if you hold back and you're not honest, with him and you don't give him a genuine reading at the point where he ought to have it. I don't say that's the first thing you do when he walks in the room. But uh, when it comes to the point where he needs to have that genuine reading, if you don't give it, you're not serving him well. Because again, he's gotten a false picture of what he's really like. So, here was Gaia spontaneously commending, assuring, and giving encouragement to go on 
in what had been done. Now we get on to the next section, very interesting part of the book. I want to picture the Christian church for a moment. <laughs> what I like is the guy who's, uh, uh, where is he? Let's see. Oh, he's right out here. You see, he's only got one hand. That's all he's got there. And it's going fast. And the part that's neat is the sawdust ball. See the sawdust coming out everywhere? These guys are working hard. And that's exactly how it is in the Christian church today. We're working hard at this. Cutting somebody else off where he is. We're all working against each other. It's amazing. One of the greatest proofs for the, for the, the truth uh, of the Christian faith is the fact that it has survived with so many people pulling the rug out from underneath of each other. Well, this wasn't designed to be a, uh, a picture of the Christian church, but it sure fits the job that I'm working on here, and so I thought I'd just give you an example of what's going on here in Third John. That's what it's all about in Third John. In Third John, there had been not only these missionaries going out and coming back and talking about how good a job Gaius did of entertaining them, but there had been a problem that arose. Now we come off the mountaintop down into the swamp. Now we come to the second part of the body of the letter, the part that revolves around a man named Diotrephes. And we read about this, and this is the heart of our study in verses 9 and 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the first place, or loves the place of preeminence among them, doesn't recognize our authority. For that reason, when I come, I shall remember everything that he has done. For example, the evil words that he babbles about us. And as though that were not enough, he himself doesn't recognize the authority of the brothers, but stops those who want to and throws them out of the church. You can see then what was going on. This uh, word throws them out of the church, ex vale, see right here, is a pretty strong word. It means just that, throw them, toss them out of the church. Now, there's an awful lot in these two verses. We could spend the next six weeks talking about these two verses and not begin to exhaust them. But let me at least say this much about it. We're going to have to take a look now at crisis counseling. We're going to have to take a look at the resolution of conflict in the church. We're going to have to look at aggravation of conflict. We're going to have to look at speech that divides. We're going to have to take a look at ambition, arrogance, and arbitrariness. We're going to have to look at what to do when counseling fails. And we're going to have to take a look at the use and misuse of church discipline. And we're going to have to take a look at authority in counseling in the church. Now, as I say, we could take the next six weeks 
going into each one of those. In fact, we could have a whole conference on any one of those items. Just think of the resolution of conflict. That would be a great conference. Or uh, crisis counseling. That would be a marvelous uh, conference. We have Welsh in here talking about how the mind responds to crises. All kinds of good stuff. I could see John up there plowing away at it, you know, giving us some good stuff about self-image in crisis, uh, confidence in crisis, whatever. And, uh, you know, we could just have a, a conference on that. We could have a conference on speech, a conference on ambition, arrogance, and arbitrariness, or a conference on what to do when counseling fails, or one on the use and misuse of church discipline in counseling, and, or one just in, on authority. In you see, all these topics are huge, and they all come up in this little book. In fact, they all come up in these two verses in this little book. Now remember, yesterday we talked about John as an old man, the pres presbyter, the elder, our presbyteros, who writes like an old man and who does an awful lot in just a very short space, says a lot, packs material, packs the wealth of his experience into those phrases and words and so on. And here he is in this crisis situation, not only packing it in as an old man does, but packing it in because there's an emergency and he's got to do something about it quickly. Pack it in because that messenger is on his way and it has to be written rapidly. And packing it in because uh, he only has this one sheet that he can do things on in, in that emergency situation. So this one piece of papyrus has to contain it all. And he's got to say what he's got to say about the situation so that Gaius at least gets the, the heart and the core of it all and can, can uh, extrapolate from all of that. There's a lot in here. These little letters are tightly packed letters. So we've got to unpack what we're trying to do here. And uh, all those things are in there. So let's look at theotrophies in the church. There is a breed of Christian who has been descended from theotrophies and we still have theotrophies in the church, no doubt about that. You're going to have to deal with theotrophies in a variety of situations and relationships. He may not always be in the same place that this man was, but uh, you're going to meet him if you haven't met him already. And if you haven't met him already, uh, you just graduated from seminary a week ago. <laughs> now, John first of all, notice, sums up what has happened. A crisis has arisen. He's sending this brief letter to meet the crisis in a temporary way until he can come and personally deal with it. He says, when I come, I shall remember. I'm going to deal with it when I come. And you remember he says uh, in verse 14, I hope to see you as soon as possible. And we shall speak mouth to mouth. All right. So, he can't come yet. He's coming soon. This letter's got to meet the crisis. It reassures Gaius in the crisis, but it also talks about the crisis and gives Gaius a viewpoint on it and all those people to whom Gaius uh, will convey this viewpoint. Surely Gaius wasn't the only person. He was a key person. He was the one to whom John writes because if not the pastor of the church, the Atrophies was probably that. Uh, here was a key person in the church with whom the Atrophies had had this difficulty 
along with others who probably had the difficulty, and Gaius is the person then who is the key individual to whom John writes who's on the outside, but ought to be on the inside, and the man who's on the inside ought to be on the outside. So John wants to make all this clear. So he's sending this brief letter to just give everybody a perspective and to let them know what to do until he can get there to deal with it himself. First of all, he informs Gaius and Gaius' friends, whoever or however many there may have been, clearly about the sequence of events that led to the crisis, including his, John's, actions so far. He says uh, not only did Diotrephes uh, refuse to have these missionaries, and refused to receive them into his own home hospitably, but he forbade other people in the church to do this. So he was a man of authority, probably pastor. And uh, if people didn't listen to that and did receive the missionaries, he threw them out of the church. Now he said, what I've done about that so far is this. I want you to know I haven't been sitting still. I haven't just let this word come to me and uh, let it rest until I can get there. I've taken action. John had, had made an immediate, given an immediate response to the situation. He said, I wrote something to the church. I wrote. I tried to get this matter resolved by immediately responding to it in writing. But the atrophies has convinced the church not to pay attention. What he did was he wouldn't listen to what I said. He rejected my apostolic authority. And, he says, he babbled about us evil words and said all sorts of nonsense. Now, the first step then had been taken. He responded quickly probably as quickly as he could get a message off. Probably it was another one-sheeter uh, like this one. Because this word T that you see here, I wrote something to the church. Right down here. Uh, Agrapsa T simply means uh, I didn't write a long or detailed letter, but I wrote something that was on the point I wrote a quickie, like I'm writing you, but he wouldn't even hear that. He would not recognize our authority. So the first thing is that he outlines what he had done to Gaius, so that Gaius will know and have no question in his mind or not be in doubt about what's going on. And secondly, you ought to notice that he did what he should have done. He confronted Diotrephes and those who were standing with him who were still in the church. He confronted them about their sinful attitudes and actions. And he said it was wrong. Cease and desist, he said, in one way or another. These men wouldn't recognize John's authority, the authority of the other elders who were with him. Incidentally, John always writes here when he talks about such things as this, in the plural, so that he makes it clear it's not a personal issue, it's a matter of authority. 
You notice he says, I have written something to the church, but the Archbishop who loves the place of preeminence among them doesn't recognize our authority. You see, our authority. It's not that it's John's personal conflict with the atrophy. He takes it out of that realm. I wrote, it's true, I wrote the letter, but I wrote it in the authority of the church, the church authority that was given to me as an apostle and of the elders of the church of Christ, where I am, and I wrote with that authority of God that's vested in his church, which you see in me as an apostle and in these others. But he refuses to hear any of us. And indeed, the response was given uh, by Diotrephes toward all. John says the evil word he babbles about us. So uh, John makes it clear it's not just a personal difference between the two of them. This is the difference in the church and a matter of authority that is being rejected. So he tells them what he did, and he did the right thing. Titus 3, 10, makes clear that John was following a process of church discipline. Here was a divisive man. You can't call Diotrephes anything but a divisive person in the church. He is dividing the church. He's throwing people out of it for doing the right thing. He's not allowing missionaries to come in. They were all part of the church of Christ. And he's dividing. He's chopping these things up and saying no. He's a divisive person. Now, John talks about a divisive person and how to handle him in Titus 3.10. Or Paul does. He says, after confronting him in the word in counseling, which is nuthateo, uh, from which nuthetic comes, it's the verb there, after confronting him in counseling, once or twice, give up on a divisive person and have nothing more to do with him. Now, you'll read that about other people. Much longer periods of time are to be spent with other people. You're to be patient as you rebuke them and so on, as we read in in uh, First Timothy, Second uh, uh, Timothy four, a rebuke in all patience, and you're to work and labor with these people. So, but not a divisive person. Something different is written about a divisive person, and because sometimes this distinction is not made in the church, great tragedy results. We try to treat a divisive person as trying to split your congregation in some way or another, just like a person is having some other kind of problem can't do that. Here you're told one or two good confrontations with that person. If he doesn't come around, get rid of him. Stay away from him. Get him away from you. Because a divisive person, if you just go on and on and on trying to work with him, he's going to split that church. He's going to divide the people of God. If he's acting divisively, you give him enough time, he'll take some people away. So, with a divisive person, action must come much more rapidly. One or two confrontations, that's it. Now, John has made his first confrontation by letter. And the man has heard nothing of it. He's about ready to make his second. He says, when I come, I'll remember. We'll talk about that remembering in a little bit. But here you see how John's at work with a divisive person. He has immediately gotten after him, and with no results, He's going to come and he's going to deal with him and deal with him definitively. He's going to bring up everything. And he's going to deal with it all. All right? So he has 
been talking about what he has done. Gaius knows that the church is not leaving him in the lurch. John has not left him to flounder somewhere outside, having been tossed out of the church to wonder what's going on. John has told him what you did was right, and I've already tried to deal with the problem. I've done everything I can so far. I want you to continue doing what you're doing, and I'll be there to finally deal with the matter as soon as I can get there. You see, that kind of a, a way of dealing with conflict and with issues is reassuring to a believer who might be confused. The matter isn't resolved, but he knows that something's being done. And how important it is to let people know what's being done if you are doing something. How many times I've had people say to me something like this, Church isn't doing anything about this situation. What's wrong with the church? I feel it's hard for me to believe that church isn't doing something about it. I'm not doing anything. Well, let's find out what they're, whether they're doing anything. You call up the pastor. Oh, yeah, we're working on that thing. We've had six meetings with those people. But they didn't tell anybody who was already hurt by the problem that they were handling it. They didn't have to tell them all the details necessarily. In some cases, it's important to do that like this. This man had been thrown out of the church. He already knew all the details. But um, if there's private matters, you don't have to go into all those. But if the church were to simply tell somebody who is in trouble, who's having difficulty, and who's been injured by someone else, hey, look, don't worry about it. We're after it. We're dealing with it. You pray about it. We're dealing with it. That's reassuring. That's important to be done. The people know that the church is on top of things. Of course, the situation is so often that church isn't on top of things. And that's bad news. John was on top of it and he wanted Gaius to know it. Okay. Now, he tells him not only about the sequence of events that led to the crisis and his own actions in response to these, but he tells Gaius now what to do in the meanwhile. He says, Gaius, keep it up. Take these missionaries. I'm sending more. In fact, the bearer of the letter was probably one of these missionaries. Take them into your home. Keep treating them this way. Indeed, treat them like God himself. And now he says, this man is doing what he's doing out of self-centeredness, self-interest. He wants the place of preeminence among them. The missionaries came, and if this man received the missionaries for several days, everybody would want to hear what the missionaries are saying. Everybody would want the missionaries to report on what God was doing through their ministries. So, instead of listening to theotrophies, he'd be down in the seat here listening to the missionaries. Instead of being up front with the limelight on him, the missionaries would have the limelight focused on them. Theotrophies wasn't going to have that. I don't have missionaries in my pulpit. And so, because of this reason, he refused. Now, we have to think about that a little later. How John knew that. How you could know that. This is judging a man's motive. We're ordinarily not able to judge people's motives. Yet John's doing it. That's a problem we're going to have to look into in a little bit. 
But right now, I just want to notice one thing with you with reference to this matter, that John puts a label on it. He calls it loving the first place. Loving the place of preeminence, or we might call it self-centeredness, if you want to give it a, a label that comprehends all kinds of situations that are similar. John doesn't call it some kind of immaturity in Diotrephes. He doesn't call it some kind of uh, disease or sickness in this man. Obviously, a man who would throw others out of the church and want that kind of prominence and refuse to have missionaries or show hospitality. Some people today would say, obviously, such a person's sick. But John didn't take that tack at all. I'm reading right now the... Um, the story of the Hinckley's. haven't quite finished it, it just came out. But as far into it as I am, maybe about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way, something like that, uh, it's a sad, sad story. You really feel for those parents. But you also see them getting sucked into the whole idea of sickness and disease. And what a tragedy, because they had people who had that orientation trying to help him, he didn't get any help. And uh, as you read the story, you see all the facts about the, the man once again and many more that you hadn't known, and read the letters that he wrote and things of that sort. See, here's a man. Here's a person who wanted to place a preeminence. Very much like this Theotrophes. Very much the same kind of spirit. And because uh, the songwriters... Uh, the publishers of songs turned him down when he thought his stuff was great and because uh, he couldn't get books published when he thought his writing was marvelous uh, he was going to make his mark one way or another it didn't matter who it was which president he had it seemed gone after uh, Carter first and got caught there in Tennessee for hauling some guns into the airport and uh, uh, then when the change of presence took place, he just went after the next one. Following this movie script of Taxi, which had the same kind of an idea that here's how somebody can become famous and make his mark by doing something like that. A person who wanted preeminence. It's sin, John says. It's not sickness, it's sin. And this guy got off on his own and brooded and dreamed about his relationship with that girl, Jody Foster, and tried to get her attention, and this is the way he determined to do it. I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing that anybody who begins to feed his own mind with the kind of sin that he did day after day and week after week and year after year might come up with, hauling off by himself and thinking about it and then following the script of a movie that told him how to do it. Well, here's the atrophies. A man whose problem was self-centeredness and he wanted to be in the limelight. And doesn't matter who got in his way, he'd run over him. John also lets him know that he has plans for dealing with the issue when he comes. Matter's not closed. I'm going to do something more about it. So, that's where it is so far. Now, let's go on. 
did John know that Theotrophy's motives were such as they are? Well, in 1 Samuel 16, 7 we read, Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Everybody would have selected the man that they saw who looked so kingly, but God looked on the heart. Now, uh, we don't know a person's heart. It's not our business to know people's hearts. We can't look in the heart. In the first chapter of Acts, God is called the heart knower. He alone is the heart knower. He's the only one who knows what goes on down inside of a human being except that human being himself, and he doesn't know it as well as God does because he's a self-deceiving person. So the only way that John could have made this decision, short of some kind of special revelation, must have been, and I don't think he got special revelation on it, must have been that Theotrophes, by what he said to the missionaries and to Gaius and to others, must have indicated what was in his heart. It must have been what he said, how he said it, or a combination thereof. For example, if he said something like, I won't have missionaries here taking up my time when I ought to be preaching the word. Now there's a statement of Diotrephes if he made such a statement that could be analyzed, looked at, in the light of his actions, and a determination about his motives could be made. Now, I've been strong over the years saying, as plainly as I know how, that we can't judge motives, because only God can judge them. But we can judge motives if the person tells us what his motives are. And in some way, Diotrephes must have made those motives clear by his words, not only his actions. Actions are not enough. They might help reinforce the words or help clarify the words if the words are there. But you have to have words. You have to have some kind of data that explain the actions before you can be sure about another person's motives. And even then, you can't be totally sure unless he speaks negatively about himself. If you come to the door to sell me a product, and I slam the door in your face, you don't know what my motives are for doing that. All you know is that I don't want to go on with what you hoped would be a sales transaction. Maybe it's because you're the fifth person who's been at the door this morning and I'm sick and tired of seeing anybody at the door. So I slam the door. Maybe it's because I'm on the phone and I don't want to waste time and I'll slam the door, but I'd be glad to hear you some other time. I could think of maybe 20 different possibilities why I slammed the door. Action alone doesn't tell you anything about why I did it, what my motives were, what my reasons were. This doesn't give you those data. But if I say to you, oh, no, not another salesman today. You're the 20th one. Bang. you got a pretty good idea why I slammed that door. <laughs> See? Now you know my movie. You don't have to read my heart. You read my lips. You read my words. 
And my actions only reinforce how strong my opinion is. But you see, you have to have some kind of verbal output in order to be able to evaluate another person's motive. Now, I don't know what it was that the atrophies said, because this is too short a letter, we don't have all those details. But I want to warn you, because if you look at this, and you say, oh, well, John goes ahead and reads motives, so I can go ahead and read motives. And you try to read people's hearts, you may make all kinds of mistakes. Maybe that door got slammed in your face because somebody said, so-and-so who thinks you were running around with his wife is going to be over with a gun to shoot you. And uh, he'll be here in 15 minutes, and it's 14 minutes after somebody told you that. You see somebody at the door, you slam that door fast. Uh, entirely different motive than you could have ever dreamed of as a salesman. You don't know what the person's motives are. Not unless he says something. Okay, so I hope I've made that point clear. It must have been because of data beyond what we know in this letter. Now... <clears throat> It's interesting here in the light of the self-esteem movement that John was talking to us about earlier today where the real solution to everybody's problem is to uh, help this guy to get all his needs, all his uh, love uh, needs met and all his strokes that he wants. Uh, here was a man who's condemned for doing just that very thing. That's that I need the preeminence. I'm going to put myself first. After I've got all the things I want and all the things I need, then maybe I can look out for some missionaries or somebody else. I can do that stuff up here on the cap of Maslow's uh, pyramid. But I've got to get all these strokes first myself. I need the preeminence. Don't you see how utterly contrary that is to everything that John does here? By the way, John doesn't uh, build him up or pump him up, as John says. Uh, he tears him down. There's some awful powerful words uh, where God has to take people down, way down from where they have blown themselves up to be. Here's a man who's flying high. He's on the crest of the wave. He's won the day. The missionaries are not getting into his church and all the objectors and problem people in his church have been tossed out. They've had a backdoor revival and Gaius was one of them. Now, that's the way he's viewing it, the atrophies. And John says he's going to have to be taken down. This guy wants the place of preeminence. He ain't going to have it. Jesus Christ has to have the place of preeminence. So, what this man did then is clearly explained and John says, here's what I did in response. Here's what he did in response to what I did. Now, uh, <clears throat> he clearly identifies Gaius as being out of the church, if you wonder how I know that, by talking about them. He loves the place of preeminence among them, not among you people, as though Gaius were still in the church. But Gaius is now thought of as being out of the church or separate from the church, so he's one of those who was tossed out. And uh, they, the ones who remain, and Diotrephes, are set over against Gaius, you see, and whoever might have been with him. 
So it seems very clear, very plain, that Gaius is no longer of that church body, no longer among the people, because he speaks of Theotrephes and his crowd as separate from Gaius. Now, notice also John names names. Paul did the same thing. Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. He talked about Hymenaeus and Philetus. He named person after person after person. And John names names here. There is a place for naming names. If the offense is open, public, notorious, so that others know about it, there's a place for naming names. Sometimes when I name names in books, for instance, some people get a little upset about that. They say, should you do that? Or maybe a little more strongly, you shouldn't do that. But anybody who's written a book, and those are the kind of people I name, and has put it out on the market in order to influence the whole church of Jesus Christ to buy some kind of psychotherapeutic system, which is against God, in my opinion, and against the Word of God, and a substitute and in competition to God, in my opinion, is doing harm to the church, and he has opened himself wide open, and it's an open thing, it's not disclosing some kind of private matter, and so I name names so people know who to watch out for. They don't mind naming me either. That's all right with me. I, I think they should name me. You know, they think it's wrong. That's what they should do. This isn't some kind of private matter where we got a problem with each other. And John's was not a private matter either. It was a problem in the church. It was a problem with authority. It was a problem with his refusal to accept authority. It was a, not a problem with doctrine at this point. Never any doctrinal issue here with uh, Diotrephes is mentioned at all. But it was a matter of Theotrephes' ambition and arrogance and rejection of authority and his arbitrariness and tossing people out of the church. So John names names because it affects people. And also, if you notice, in the process of church discipline, there comes a point where people have to be identified. If you read with me in 2 Thessalonians 3, you'll see that this is true. Verses 14 and 15. Paul says, now whoever doesn't obey what we say in this letter, mark, mark that person. Mark that person. Identify him. Signify who he is. Put an identifying mark on him so that we know who he is. And don't mix with him. No way you could obey that command to not mix with him unless you knew who he was. Otherwise, you might be mixing with him unaware, so that he may be ashamed of himself, and yet we don't regard him as an enemy, but rather counsel him as a brother. How are you going to counsel him if you don't know who he is? Mark that man. Identify that man. Now, this is in the fourth stage of discipline that Paul's talking about here, the same stage uh, that John was in here, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Just wait a few minutes. But uh, here we have it, identifying people, marking people out, naming names. Church discipline has five stages. That is a full process. Sometimes it might begin at a later stage like this one did because this began in an open, notorious way. It didn't begin as a personal matter. But the first stage of church discipline is self-discipline. 
frequently people miss that point. But self-discipline is the first stage. Discipline begins with myself alone. There's only one person involved before God, and that's myself. And part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control or self-discipline. It's not that it's self-discipline in the sense that I'm capable of disciplining myself in and of my own wisdom and strength, but it's self-discipline or self-control as a fruit of the Spirit. That is, something the Spirit works within me as he uses his word to mold and give me the wisdom and strength to do it. So self-discipline is the first thing. Suppose I have trouble with anger, and I'd like to pop off and, and uh, haul off and pop you in the nose. But I control myself, and I don't do it. And I, as Proverbs says, check that anger, holding it back, and calm it. So I keep my hand in my pocket instead of letting it go. That's self-discipline. But suppose I, I fail in self-discipline, and I do swat you in the nose. Okay, now other people are involved. Obviously, you're involved. So now it's a one-on-one -on -one situation, stage two. Now we're into uh, Matthew 18, 15 following. If there's a problem between two brothers, then they're to go and resolve that problem with one another. And uh, you come to me, I'm still fuming and still hot and around the collar, hot and bothered and so on, and you come to me and uh, you say, hey, look, uh, we got to get this thing resolved. You let me have it. And uh, I don't want something between the two of us that's not right. And, and I'm willing to forgive you if you're willing to confess that sin and seek forgiveness. And I say, not on my life will I do that. I popped you, and if you don't get out of here, you're likely to get another one right on top of it. Well, maybe you wait a little while and you figure you've got to let me cool, and uh, you've got to let me uh, get to the place where uh, I can think it over a bit, and uh, then maybe you can come again. And, and this time, two or three days later, uh, you try. Well, I'm not quite so angry. I say, I think there was good cause for hitting you. And if such good cause occurs again, then I'm likely to respond exactly the same way again. And I don't see any reason to uh, confess that as sin because you deserve everything you got. Now get out of here. Now maybe you make one more attempt, and that time I slam the door. And... Uh, so you say, well, he isn't going to hear it. So you might turn here to Matthew 18, by the way. Let's start looking at it. Matthew 18, 15. says, um, if your brother sins against you, go and convict him of his sin privately with just the two of you present. By the way, the word convict there is an interesting word. It's not the word for uh, 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 it, that is used over in Luke 17:3, where you're to go to the brother and, and confront him tentatively. Uh, that's where there's some question about it. But here's where it's no question about it whatsoever, where there's no, no matter of a, an explanation on it, but uh, the person has no explanation. And so here it is to uh, convict him. That is, really bring the case home such a place he's accused successfully of the crime which he has committed against you, whatever it may be. The legal term comes out of the court. And uh, so you go to him and he refuses it. Now, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. It doesn't go any farther. And the whole purpose of church discipline is to show concern for that brother and to win him back. It's not to get rid of him.